0: The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the men and women that are here. Whenever I see people self-selecting into sessions like this, I know they've got a passion to pass the baton, and so it's always hard to think in in 60 minutes um, what uh, pieces of truth and And wisdom can we provide. So I pray that you'd give me clarity uh, where to focus, where to land. You'd give us all uh, the ability to keep focusing as it gets later into the evening. We're embodied beings and the soul and spirit are willing, but sometimes the body is not. So we pray for your strength as we talk here together tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the uh, conference theme focuses on this effective church equipping, and it is, as Jim mentioned, a tremendous passion of mine. Every church I've been in, I've equipped lay counselors. I'm in a fourth church now as an elder, and in this setting I'm trying to practice what I preach, which is some change management. Some of what I'll be uh, speaking on tonight is from the book that Jim mentioned, Equipping Counselors for Your Church. And one of the chapters is on change management. Sometimes you go to a session like this, and you get really excited about uh, biblical counseling. Now, a lot of you are probably in churches that are already committed to this, but if any of you are in churches that are not committed to an approach of sufficiency of Scripture and progressive sanctification relating truth to life, like we talked about from Philippians 2, I encourage change management. The last thing we want to do is go in as biblical counselors and ruin relationships. Now, that doesn't mean we don't get involved in the process of equipping people, but there is a, a change management process. But that's another session for another time. What we're going to be talking about today is about a half of one of 14 chapters. So, again, we'll try to race through it, but not too much. What I want to do on the first page in a moment after we hit this cover page is I want to give you an outline of the entire process that I've used in uh, three different churches, kind of the 4E process, and that I also brought together. I interviewed 24 best practice Churches, you know, Faith in Lafayette, we did large churches, small churches, African American churches, multicultural churches, so that it wasn't just my experience in three churches, but we ended up with 27 churches, three I'd been in and 24 others, to really put together this compilation of what are some best practice principles for equipping counselors in the church. So we'll introduce you to that. You see at the bottom of that cover page the whole idea of the presentation focus. We'll talk again about this in a moment, but imagine that you're forwarding your resume to the divine counselor. Now, what characteristics would you highlight if you were saying to Christ, I want to be qualified to be a biblical counselor? So this session is going to develop and to illustrate this four-dimensional Christ-centered equipping model that unites, and you see the four that I'll use here, Christ-like character, biblical content, counseling competence, and Christian community. One of the things I've found as I consult with a lot of churches is there's a tendency in biblical counseling to focus on one to the exclusion of the other. And you really lose something in that process. And part of the way God's wired me, my DNA, is this kind of thinking comprehensively, whether it's the four E's of uh, equipping. And enlightening and visioning that we have in the book are the four C's. God also is working on me, my obsessive compulsive alliteration disorder. I'm having some counseling (laughs) with George. Uh, I'm not over it yet, but uh, that'll come at some point. But that comprehensive nature is important to me. After your cover page, I want to talk a little bit about are you a Milton Berle or an Ed Sullivan? Now, I want to start this way because effective equipping starts with you, and your vision for ministry. Now, the fact, again, that you've self-selected into this room and into this session tells me that you are not a Milton Berle, but an Ed Sullivan. Now, I'm dating myself and my age, but, you know, there's TV land and everything. Let me give you a little bit of television history here. Uh, Back in 1948, long, long before I was born, long after George was born, but not that long, um, Milton Berle starred on the Texaco Star Theater. And his approach was like the old vaudeville model where he was a host and he called other acts to center stage. But what happened, as I understand it from my history, is little by little, instead of the, the spotlight being on other people, the spotlight was on Uncle Miltie. And a show that at one time was the most popular show on television petered out after eight years. That show was on Tuesday night. There was another show, the Ed Sullivan Show, that initially was not nearly as popular, but it had the same model of that kind of vaudeville where you bring other people to center stage. Well, where Uncle Milty, and I per- purposefully have his picture larger because he became the focus of attention, and Ed Sullivan smaller, because rather than Ed Sullivan being the focus of attention, he saw his job as bringing others into the spotlight. And, and when I think about that, I think about Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, verses 11 and 12, that gives us, as leaders in the church, as pastors, teachers, our calling to equip the saints for the work of ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. A Milton Burl pastor has the spotlight on him, and they do a lot of biblical counseling, and that's a great thing, but doesn't pass the baton of faith to other people. We want to move from a Milton Burrell style of biblical counseling, as important as it is that we're doing biblical counseling, we want to be the Ed Sullivan where we're passing the baton of faith to other people. Um, I've had the privilege of teaching at Capital Bible Seminary for 17 years. I've I've left that ministry as of this last year. But what's really neat about that is you see people going and then taking what you've trained them to do. And uh, Sister Ellen Barney is a first lady at a predominantly African-American church, the senior pastor's wife. She has trained in 10 years over 1,000 women in biblical counseling at their church. And when they do their graduation ceremony, they do it up big and they do it upright. I mean, it's a big deal. And the first year that I taught there, Sister Ellen introduced me as a speaker. And right before I went to speak, she looked at me and she said, Dr. Kellerman, these are your grandbabies. You trained me and I trained them. And then as I've come back, A few years in a row, I get feeling really old because you say, Dr. Kellerman, look around. These are your great, great, great grandbabies because you trained me and I trained Sister Alexander and she trained. I don't feel quite that old, but that's what I want to talk about. And that's what, again, I know you have that already in your heart. You wouldn't be here at 8 o'clock on a Thursday night. But I want to stir up that gift of God and that passion that we have. Grandbabies. So what I want to do is give you, first of all, before we look at these four C's of the resume, I want to very quickly give you this kind of lapse or the four E's of envisioning. So we're going to do this rather quickly. It's basically in one page, summarizes the whole 300 pages of the equipping book. Let me just kind of walk you through this or maybe race you through it. Envisioning is that first E, envisioning God's ministry. Jointly creating mission, vision, passion, commission statements. Now, I know for some of you, there's an immediate pushback. Oh, mission and vision statements. We spend thousands of hours and nothing happens. Well, that can happen. But it also can be done in a good way. And I think one of the keys is that you jointly do it. In fact, I just got a call right before I left. This guy's like, I'm going to be talking with all our elders mid-July. Can I get an hour on the phone with you? Because we've got a biblical counseling ministry, but it's going a lot of different directions, and we're going to try to start over, not the whole thing, but the vision. How do we do that? I'm like, can I talk to you on July 8th when I'm back in town? And I couldn't, so I talked to him right before I left. But what I find a lot of times is if you don't do envisioning well and you don't do it jointly, if it just kind of Moses from on high, what you end up having is these relaunches of the ministry. Or you have a church where biblical counseling is the pocket in the corner and it's not saturating the entire ministry. So in the book we talk a lot about how do you jointly create these processes. The word picture for this is go, and that's what I mean by that. Sometimes vision processes, you're on the starting block and you never leave. But a good process, and one of the things I encourage people to do in the book, with the 24 best practice churches, I collated the 50 passages that came up the most when pastors and church leaders equipped their people. And so what I do now is I take those 50 passages in the mission process, instead of coming down from Moses on high, you develop study guide questions. So you've got everybody in your church who's passionate about biblical counseling, studying the scriptures together to say, what do these 50 passages say about a biblical counseling ministry in a local church? That's ownership. That, then, when you're on the starting block and you're ready to launch, you've got people who are excited about the ministry. So the the question here, are you running in the right direction? Core values. We talk about things like sufficiency of Scripture and progressive sanctification, Christ-centered counseling. If you don't get this right from the beginning, what you're going to have is you're going to have those people, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but. And what I always tell people is, look, we want good Bereans, but we don't want Corinthians, <laughs> We want Bereans that ask good questions out of a good heart. But we settled a long time ago in our vision process that this is going to be a biblical counseling model, and here's how we define that. And if that's not a model you're comfortable with, then the yes but is really not. You save a lot of that, and you have some credibility and integrity when you say, we went together, 50 of us, to develop this passion. So again, that's a big picture of what we spent four chapters in the book talking about. Lap 2. The second E of enlisting God's ministers for ministry, mobilizing ministers by nurturing a family and building a team prepared for change, skilled in conflict resolution, and connected to the MVPC statement. I talked earlier about that whole change management. I'm in a church now as a a lay elder that has a number of leaders who have social work degrees and Christian degrees from secular places or Christian schools that don't have a biblical counseling approach. And I am slowly trying to to win the trust and the leadership and the the vision and build a process. We first, uh, the church asked me to walk the whole church through a mission, vision, passion process. We did that last year. This year, they asked me to to uh, lead our elder team through a mission, vision, uh, passion process. And the next year, as elders, we're going to lead each ministry through. Now, you may say, pull your hair out. That takes forever. One of my students at uh, Capital Bible Seminary, I had a young student say, Dr. Kellerman, why all this laying on the ground? We're just to equip the people. And an older African-American saint, and it didn't have to be an older African-American, but he got up and he said, you're probably too young and too white. That's what he said. To remember to be able to do the moonwalk, talking to this young Caucasian student who hadn't been in ministry. And then he kind of did the Michael Jackson moonwalk. (laughs) He said, if you don't do what Doc K is talking about, you're going to end up doing the ministry moonwalk. It may take you a year to lay the groundwork, but it's going to take you 10 years to clean up your mess if you don't do it. And so part of this enlisting process is getting everybody on the same page. I try to give a word picture with each of these. Mr. Potato Head. It may be a little hard back there for the folks in the back, but you got Mr. Potato Head all out of place. You know what happens in a lot of churches with a lot of ministries is we do panic recruiting to fill a need. I mean, we see that in the nursery all the time, and it's not good in the nursery. I mean, and we laugh, and it is kind of funny, but nowadays with protecting our children, we don't want to do panic recruiting with any of our ministries, and we definitely don't want to do it with our biblical counseling ministry. We want people that are committed to our mission, vision, passion. They're committed to progressive sanctification. They're committed to the sufficiency and authority and and relevancy of God's Word. You want people that fit together, that there's a good match in your biblical counseling ministry. So the question here, are the right runners running the right lap, committed people? What you want to get is the entire congregation excited about biblical counseling. The, The illustration I give, some of you may be familiar with the EE, Evangelism Explosion. I was in a church that was a regional training center for that. We understood, and it was a church of 4,000, we were not going to have 4,000 people in the EE ministry. We wanted 4,000 people committed to lifestyle and proclamational evangelism, but we knew we might have 100 people committed to the EE program. You want the same thing in a church. The entire church saturated with a love for one another ministry and excitement that God's word makes a difference in people's life and a confidence that we can do something with God's word. And then out of that, you do have those specially trained individuals, 25, 50, 100, whatever, depending on your church, three, five, that are doing formal biblical counseling. And that's the model that we talk about in the equipping. So you've got envisioning, enlisting. And then what we're really going to talk about for most of our time tonight, this equipping part of the scenario, equipping godly ministers for ministry. applying transformational training strategies that comprehensively address the four C's that we're going to talk about, content, character, competence, and Christian community. Now, the picture here, and by the way, I put Tony Dungy up here because I I like Tony Dungy for a lot of reasons. He's a committed believer. But they talk in football about the coaching tree. And you've got a Tony Dungy coaching tree where he's got people that coach for him that now are head coaches, that kind of like that, he's got grandbabies and great grandbabies. That's one of the reasons I want to have him up there. He doesn't just tell people what to do. He doesn't just give people a fish. He teaches his coaches how to fish, how to coach. And that's what we want to do in biblical counseling. One of the things I find that I think sometimes has been in some segments of our movement, something of a weakness, is we see biblical counseling training as a brain dump. Now, I told you when I do this, full-day seminar, I start with a a theology of biblical counseling. I believe in that. I wrote a 525-page book on a theology of counseling. I believe in the brain, the head, knowing biblical truth, but not just a brain dump where truth is not related to life. We're going to talk about that more in a few moments, but I just want to caution us that here's what happens. If we train people only in this lecture mode, no matter how much we tell them that real counseling is not just talking at people, but it's studying the scripture together together, and it's loving people, being compassionate, they're going to counsel the way they've seen us teach them. And so we're going to talk a little bit toward the very end at like 11.35, no, no, 8.55, about what are some just basic principles of, of going from just the lecture mode to that more intimate, interactive mode. Is every race participant a skilled runner? Do you have truly coached people? You know, another way to look at that, and I talk about it in the book, is what does a nurtured graduate look like? Well, we're going to talk about that. When I interview people for the formal biblical counseling ministry in a church setting, I've done this in seminary too, I'll give them a lot of things I expected them, but I'll say at the end, by God's grace, if you're an active participant in what God allows us to do in your life, here are some things gonna happen. They're gonna change in your life, ways you're gonna grow, raise your ways your relationship and your, your home will change and mature. What's a nurtured graduate? We need as trainers and equippers to kind of look down at the end. When these folks are done, what do we want them to look like? That's really what we're going to focus on tonight. The last lap that we talked about in the last couple chapters of the equipping counselors for your church is empowering. And we say it this way, empowering godly ministers for ministry. Overseeing the ongoing organizing of the organism. Let me just stop there. That's a phrase I love because probably we could divide this room between those who are organizers, real structured, and those who are organism, real body life, real relational. And we need to have, to make a biblical counseling ministry really function on all cylinders, we need to have people that can do both. And here's one thing I would say, if you're like real organized and not very touchy-feely, one, let's all grow a little bit, but two, get an administrative assistant or a co-leader that balances out your strengths and your weaknesses. We need the ability to organize the organism. By leading ministers that ministries that are built to last, they grow from good to great and leave a legacy of loving leaders. A couple word pictures here. Empowering word pictures. Spinning plates and the elephant in the room. Let me talk about each of these. And basically, chapter 11 of the book is spinning plates, and the final chapter is the elephant in the room. Spinning plates. Let me tell you about my very first ministry. I was in that church about 4,000, counseling, discipleship, pastor. I was counseling about 20 people a week. I also had an ABF, an adult Bible fellowship Sunday school, of 100 married couples. Do the math on that with about two kids, about 400 people. I was responsible to shepherd. That's a big church in itself. Uh, I was doing, you know, a big church. You're going to meetings. You're doing all this hospital visitation. I trained my first group of 12 uh, lead, lay encouragers and disciplers two-year program, and then with the co-trainer, we began to train 24 other people while I was still supervising the first 12, while I was still doing the Talk about spinning plates. Well, I, I came to learn that policy and procedure can can be a good thing, not a dirty word. I mean, some of us, especially if we're like the touchy-feely relational type, policy and procedure, to me, good policy and procedure gives you more people time because you're not reinventing the wheel. One of the things I did in the book that PNR didn't really want me to do, but I really insisted, because publishers like smaller books and then they like to sell them in segments. But I put together all of this as appendix stuff, about a third of the book, because I wanted you to have stuff where you didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Now, I probably shouldn't tell you this either, because maybe you won't buy that part of the book or whatever, but I actually got permission from PNR to put that 100 pages for free on my website, RPM Ministries, because... If you get it in the book and you want to make it fit for you, it's still kind of hard, right, unless you're scanning it in. So I got it on my website, so you can see a policy procedure, take out the name of my church, put your name, change the wording. I want to help you. Uh, publishers don't like that, but look, if we want to be grandparents, and we've got to give some stuff away, right? Um, so spinning plates and elephants in, in the room, the final one. Again, a lot of you may be in churches where you've, you've gone over this hurdle already. But some of us are not. We're in churches where we're not there, and people are terrified of what? Lawsuits, legal issues. So, the last chapter of the book we talk about, and we talk, you know, take some history from MacArthur's Church and what happened there, and talk about the fact that you can never guarantee that you won't get sued. But frankly, the more important thing is even more than following the law, law of the land, which we need to follow, but, you know, Romans 13 starts with the law of the land, thirteen one to 7, but where does it go then? 13.8 to 10, the royal law of love. I mean, we should have good policy and procedure that protects our counselees from abuse and sin by counsellors and other issues because we're following the law of God's word even more than we're terrified of being sued by someone. I ought to be a both-and, but it ought to start with the commitment to caring with people with the royal law of God. So are the runners running on all cylinders? Is there a comprehensive Strategy Again, the appendix of the book has over 100 pages where we try to give you some policy and procedures that hopefully will be helpful in your ministry. All right, now for what we're really focused on here for our last 40 minutes, page 2 of my notes, but page 43 of your notes, Equipping Godly Ministers for Ministry, Preparing for the race. Now, if I hadn't already given you the four C's, and if we had a whole lot more time, this would be fun to talk about, but at least introduce that initial question you see here and in your notes. Imagine you were forwarding your resume to the divine counselor. What characteristics would you highlight to demonstrate your qualifications to be a biblical counselor? And it would probably be interesting to have you think that through and jot it down and talk in a group, because I'm guessing we'd come up with some different themes, but sometimes what I found when I have done that. You've got these little pockets, but few people really bring together a comprehensive picture. So we want to try to do that together. And here's kind of what we're thinking about. So let's assume that you've done the envisioning process. You've done the enlisting process. You've got people committed to sufficiency of Scripture. You've got the church on board. And now you've got people sitting down in front of you. What do you do with these folks? What's the goal? Now, again, what you could do is open their cranium and just dump a lot of content in that's not related to life. Or you can do content related to life and a whole lot more. Let me tell you a little bit about my first day. I was about 29 when I first started training biblical counselors at Church Open Door in Elyria, Ohio. And I started with the lecture part. We did our lecture, hour lab, right from the get-go. And, you know, I did the lecture. I had my notes, and I was up here doing my thing. And then we took a little break, and we took the chairs, and there were 12 of us. Everybody but my wife was older than me, some by 10 or 15 years. We put the little chairs in a group. And all of a sudden, I had this picture of myself as a little boy in his dad's oversized suit. I had this picture because I didn't have my notes, not that was lab. We were going to talk about real life. One of the things... I'll talk about it in a minute, that I'm really convinced about in biblical counseling, is you learn to become an effective biblical counselor by giving and receiving biblical counseling in community. You learn to become an effective biblical counselor by giving and receiving biblical counseling in community. You create a safe environment where you don't just do role plays, and I think role plays can be good, but you get safe enough with your 12 trainees that you say, what you are struggling with? Let's do biblical counseling right here, right now. And so that's what we were about to do. And so I had a decision to make right then. I could either pretend I didn't feel that at all. I could not say it to the group. But I made a decision that changed the shape of the two-year two program we had. Because I said to them, I shared the picture I had. And guess what? I wasn't the only one who felt like that, right? They were glad that I felt like that because they thought I had it all together. They were terrified. I was a guy with a degree that does all this counseling. And, they're in, and so we experienced together in that hour or so. In fact, it went too long and the nursery people are knocking on the door. Our first hour, we couldn't get out of there because we shared biblical encouragement together. We shared empathy of men. I feel the same way, but we also went to passages like Philippians 2. If we've got encouragement in Christ, we went to other passages and we shared together. From day one, we were living out the comprehensive model and approach that we want to talk about our next half hour so So let's talk about this a little bit competent to counsel the resume of a biblical counselor now some people push back nobody in this room but certainly in some circles you know people may push back on you a lay person doing counseling you got to have an alphabet soup after your name right so when those folks push back, I think there's some things we need to do and some things we need to think about, and there's certainly a lot of places that we can go in scripture. We're going to settle for the next half hour on Romans fifteen fourteen, and we'll put that up there in the slide later. But let me read it to you. Feel free to turn there if you want. Romans fifteen fourteen. Paul begins, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct the NIV, or competent to counsel one another. Many of you know, that's where Jay Adams got the title for one of his very first books, Competent to Counsel, right out of this verse. And I love where Paul starts. I myself am convinced that you yourselves, and the NIV translates that very well, actually, because the Greek is redundant for emphasis. I, I myself, Paul, the great apostle, right? I'm confident that you, you yourself. I mean, think about these people. Paul's saying you're competent to instruct disciple, councilman. They're like, yeah, you, the apostle Paul, could do that. But me, he's talking to people in Rome, and we think of some mega church. You know, look at Romans 15 and 16. You're talking about small house churches, 20, 30 people. These were not bigwig people here. These were your average, ordinary, there's no average, ordinary Christian, but they were your average, ordinary Christian in Rome. And Paul says, I myself am confident that you yourselves are what? Competent counsel it's interesting too this word confident is inwardly confident based on external evidence and guess what what we're going to do the rest of our time this evening is see the evidence that paul sees in them that we need to see at a seed level with people and then develop as it germinates we'll talk more about that in a couple minutes second thing i want to share with you a little bit and the survey says and i don't have the bibliographical info but i do talk about it in the book when I was out working on my PhD at Kent State, a series of meta studies came out. These were studies of studies of studies. And what happened was the first meta analysis studied a bunch of studies in sec- secular literature that came out with this conclusion. People with PhDs and LPCCD, all this stuff, and I got the alphabet soup after my name, to their help is no more helpful and sometimes less helpful than the the word that was used then was paraprofessional. Well, the secular world didn't like that study, right? So they did a meta-analysis of the meta-analysis. They did it like three or four generations, and guess what? They kept coming up with the same thing. Now, I'm not here to bash people with education. I got education. I trained people at the master's level, and I love that. But I'm here, rather than bashing people with education, I want to elevate the, we know it doesn't exist, but the average, ordinary person. Paul says, I'm convinced. I myself am convinced that you yourselves are competent to counsel. We can look at what the scriptures say. We can look at the good scientific research. It tells us that the degrees are not what qualifies somebody to counsel. So what is it? Well, fortunately, we are given the divine counselor's resume qualifications here in Romans 15, 14. Again, Paul says, I myself am convinced my brother's. That you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Let me give you just quickly the four C's here, my obsessive-compulsive alliteration disorder. First one is character. comes out of the phrase full of goodness. By the way, what I did here is I looked at this passage in context, and I looked at Many of those other 50 passages that best practice churches look at. So it's not just this one verse. It's this one verse in context with a lot of other verses that talk about what makes a competent one another minister. So the first one is character, and we'll develop this in a moment, full of goodness. Second one is content, complete in knowledge. Not just a brain dump, but we're not saying throw out theology, throw out knowledge, what sort of knowledge, and how do we apply it. Third one is competence, competent to instruct, competent to counsel. So as you're looking at even the groups you have right now, are you thinking, what are we doing to build Christ-like character into them? What are we doing to build content, truth to life, into them? What are we doing to build competence into them? Uh, Sometimes when I go and work with churches, I see them maybe, for instance, all focused on competence. They're really skillful, but they don't exactly know where they're going with those skills you can think about what would happen with any of these out of whack or out of balance. And then community. Where do I get this? Well, Paul starts with brothers. He ends with one another. We're going to talk about the the context of this passage also. So my four C's, and obviously they don't have to be C's, but full of goodness, complete in knowledge, competent to instruct, brothers one another. And again, I would ask, what are you doing to create community in your biblical counseling training? If I'm at all right, that effective biblical counseling is learned as we give and receive biblical counseling in community, then this is pretty important. Role play is great. Watching a skilled counselor is great. Counseling somebody is great. But I tell you what, what I have seen time after time, when our lab groups start counseling one another in the room with real life stuff, powerful stuff happens. But that takes a room that's built a safe, trusting environment. So How do you do that? Well, we'll talk about that toward the end so let's develop these as uh we have about half of our time left christ-like character loving like jesus full of goodness remember what paul said i'm inwardly convinced based on external evidence so as he looked at these average ordinary roman christians he said i see that you're full of goodness now let's talk about that a little bit goodness is agathos which is one of the fruit of the spirit now the first time i started studying this i'm like you know, if I would have done this, I probably that might not have been the fruit I would have chosen. I mean, if you were picking one fruit of the nine fruit of the Spirit, which one might you have picked if you said full love to be a biblical counselor? What might you have picked? Love often comes to mind, maybe peace. So, so it just made me think, why did Paul pick this? I mean, he's inspired by the Spirit. Why did the Spirit inspire Paul to pick this? So I started studying that a little bit in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And I began to see something that, you know, I take a lot more pages to develop in the book, but let me summarize it here. Biblical goodness is grace relationships. In the Old Testament, we're told many times, one of the key Old Testament words for goodness is that only God is good, but then it's always used in the context, his love endures forever. It's his, his hesed, his, his faithful, loyal love. In the New Testament, goodness is used so many times of Christ in his grace, mercy, and forgiveness. So I think one of the reasons that the Spirit inspired Paul to use this word, full of goodness, it's talking about grace relationship. I mean, what does a biblical counselor need but grace relationship? I mean, think about Galatians 6.1. You know, you who are spiritual, coming right after the fruit of the Spirit, be careful, though, that you go about this in a way that's humble, and you're equal, and you're not one up, because you too can be tempted. I mean, that's grace relationship, not I'm the biblical counselor with no problems. And what does Paul Tripp say? People in need of change, helping people in need of change. That's what's being talked about by this word. Here's the way I put it in some of my different writing. The powerful spiritual friend or biblical counselor reflects and relates like the ultimate spiritual friend or biblical counselor, if that word is one you're more comfortable with, Jesus. In other words, full of goodness means you and I increasingly reflect the way Christ relates to people when, think, when people think of biblical counselors is grace the first thing that comes into their mind it's a rhetorical question but one I want us to reflect on I mean sometimes our critics are not very fair right and we can easily opt uh, but in all fairness first thing that comes to mind with us as a movement is a grace Just something for us to think about, that I need to think about. Well, Paul says, full of goodness, the idea of overflowing, same um, word is used in the Gospels of Jesus saying, throw the nets. They're like, well, he's not a fisherman, but he's never been wrong before. Throw the nets, what happens? It fills over, overflows. That's the idea. You're Christ-like love, and you're receiving Christ's love and grace so overflows in your life that it, it spills over into the lives of the people you minister to. i put it this way in the notes. The person who's good at relating to God will be good at relating to others. David Paulson has an interesting thing. He says, you know what? If we could just learn to pray the Psalms, we would be great biblical counselors. Because people that pray the Psalms are what? Good at relating to God. And when you're good at relating real, raw life to the God of the universe, then you're good at relating to other people and relating truth to life. Here's another way I like to say it. Competence without character is like one corpse practicing cosmetic surgery on another corpse. Let that one sink in for a little bit. Um, We had one seasoned pastor that came into one of our seminary labs and really was trying. But it was obvious that he had this toolbox of certain skills he had learned, but could not connect with people. And one of the women in the lab said to him, if we took your toolbox of skills away, what would be left to minister to this hurting person in front of you? Now, did he need skills? We're going to talk about competence and skills in a minute. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But, but the character to, to relate with grace relationships. So just before you totally turn that page, mentally at least, here's something to think about. Does our biblical counseling equipping, focused on producing people who love like Jesus. It's not in your notes somewhere. It's my summary. I'll say it a couple times because it's getting late. (laughs) Does our biblical counseling equipping, so your equipping ministry, does it focus on producing people who love like Jesus? As you look at the end goal of what you want to get after 48 hours or two years, however you do your ministry, is one of the things I want people who love like Jesus. If it's not, then I don't think we're meeting this full of goodness, Christ-like character, qualification that paul calls us to in romans 15:14. next page of your note second c complete in knowledge biblical content and conviction now if i were to stop here some of you might rightly say i knew it that kellman just that touchy-feely relating guy and doesn't think truth matters well i'm not stopping there because i think truth matters and I'm only doing it in this order because this is the order that Paul did it in, and that doesn't mean like I got to have a dose of character. But I mean, life is a mess, right? <laughs> and training is a mess; it's all over the place. But you know, I got to teach it in some order, so I'm following Paul's. That seems like a good thing to do. Complete. Does Paul mean all of our counselees that come to us, and we're start, our trainees? They've got to know every word of scripture, encyclopedic knowledge. Well, if that's the case, then I'm not being their training trainer because I don't have it. And let's be honest, none of us have it. It's not encyclopedic knowledge. So the word has the idea of truth that claims our entire being, that cap- we are captured by God's truth. So, so what we're really saying here is that God's word first impacts our lives as a trainer. Then it impacts the lives of our trainees. Then it impacts the lives of their counselees. There's that grandparent Analogy, once again, we're relating truth to our lives. We're relating and helping our trainees learn to learn how to relate truth to their lives. And then they're helping their counselees to learn to relate truth to their life. That's the sufficiency and relevancy of God's word. Paul uses this word knowledge or nosios. What sort of knowledge is he talking about? Well, it's not a word that means just a brain dump. It's a word that means more than that. It's information plus application equals transformation. I mean, really, it's wisdom to relate truth to life. So let's ask ourselves again, as we're training people, is it just a brain dump where we're giving them tons of content? Are we helping people to think wisely? Jim mentioned that uh, for PNR, I did a, a booklet on uh, sexual abuse, on Beauty for Ashes, and I walked through 2 Samuel 13, Tamar's rape by our half-brother, and not. And part of my point was if in that little 40 page booklet on one chapter in one book in scripture can give us wisdom for life that helps a sexual abuse victim, just think about the bounty of wisdom for life in the 66 books of the Bible for sexual abuse or other issues in life. See, that's what we want to model for people. Again, don't just give them a fish of a lot of info. Teach them how to go to a passage and understand how that relates to real life, and then in a relational way, how that plays itself out as they're counseling people. Philippians 1, 9 to 11, we'll talk about this just a little bit in my session tomorrow, but Paul talks about love abounds in wisdom and depth of insight. See, that's the other pushback. It's not just that it's love. What does Paul say? Love abounds in wisdom and depth of insight. Paul's both and. It's truth and love verse we're going to talk about and really focus on tomorrow in my session on Scripture and Soul and I get the title from this. Uh, And I'll mention tomorrow in the plenary session that that I call call it a love sandwich because Paul sandwiches Scripture and soul around love. You were so dear to us that we gave you not only the Scriptures but our very own soul because we loved you. Scripture and soul, truth and love, content related to life. So a question that you can squeeze in there somewhere. I don't have it anywhere in your notes. But does our equipping and counseling focus on, here's the key two words, transformational wisdom? So as you're picturing the end result of your counseling training, is it that they can pass a theology exam? I hope so. We talked about Christology today. But remember, we related Christology to life. One more time. Does our equipping and biblical counseling focus on transformational wisdom? That our graduates of our counseling programs, whatever we call them in our churches or seminaries or colleges, we got people leaving with wisdom to relate truth to life. That's what Paul is talking about. Biblical content and conviction. Thinking like Jesus, complete in knowledge. Counseling competence, point C, about the middle of the next page or that page of your notes. Serving like Jesus, competent to counsel. So you've got Christ-like character, you've got content related to life, but then what does that equip you to do? Uh, Let's talk a little bit about what Paul was talking about here. First, this word competent. Now, it sounds like dynamite, but it's not dynamite. Dynamite is explosive power that destroys. This Greek word is not power that destroys, but power that builds up. Competent means you have the ability to build up other people have here, power to accomplish a mission is how this word is used other times in Scripture. You're competent. You can accomplish a mission. We're going to talk in a moment what that mission ought to be. I love Star Trek. Remember the first generation, Scotty, and and they always had the dilithium crystal would fall apart. I mean, they're like 200 years into the future. They're out in space, and it's like they can't even get gas for their vehicle. I never really figured it out. But Captain Kenick, the DeLithian, Christian, we ain't got no power. Well, this is saying we've got power on a mission to do something. Another use of this word is ability, capability, resources, strength, competence. You want people that are competent to do something. We're going to talk in a minute. Competent to do what? When I think about this, uh, after I'm done teaching these couple of times, surely. I, Shirley and I are going to vacation in San Diego, and I got a book on the Civil War. I love the Civil War. One of my biggest heroes is Joshua Chamberlain. You may remember the story where he was told, you hold Little Round Top, and it's basically, if you don't, they're getting to D.C., and this war is over. So as you may recall from maybe if you saw the four-hour Gettysburg movie or done any reading, they were out of ammunition. And Chamberlain's at the top of the hill, and he just tells his people, fix bayonets, and they charge down the hill. Now, the rebels would have their rebel yell. Well, they were yelling and screaming as the northern soldiers, the Yanks. The rebels were terrified, turned the other way, and there's a scene in the movie that I verified from Chamberlain's own biography that's true where one of the privates, you know, holding his gun on this guy who surrendered, and he says to Chamberlain, I don't have any bullets. Shh, none of us have any bullets. You know, he didn't want, but they were on a mission, competent. We want people that are on a mission to do something, and you say, well, do what? Well, let's talk about it. Here, very briefly, what is the mission of biblical counseling? Well, obviously, from where we get the modern biblical counseling movement, New Thetic, when Paul says competent to instruct or counsel, New the is a word that's used here in Romans 15, 14. You're confident to care from. You're confident to take somebody who's struggling with the besetting sin, who's sinning against God and other people, sinning against who they're designed to be in Christ, and you're, you have the ability not just to hammer them over the head with the Bible, which is a false stereotype of biblical counseling, but to compassionately say you can have victory in Christ in this in an increasing progressive sanctification way. So they are competent to Oh, is what this verse talks about. So part of it, when we're done, we want people who can use God's word to help people to have victory over sin. But I would say that that's not, certainly not the only word in the New Testament for biblical counseling ministry. So I believe we ought to be training people who are competent to comfort one another, paracletic counseling, soul care for the suffering. Now, frankly, is it ever either or? I mean, what, which one of us has been sinned against and is suffering and doesn't in our heart sin against God or other people as a result of that suffering? So I mean, frankly, it's always this spaghetti mess of paracletic and euthetic ministry. But I would say that our movement can continue to grow in the ability to help people compassionately comfort others who are hurting and struggling. Think about 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Eight times in those few verses, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 11, Paul uses a form of the word parakleo. We talk tonight, encouragement, paraklesis, the Holy Spirit, our paraklete. All those words are coming from the same root. We ought to be, as biblical counselors people, and as people training biblical counselors, folks that are helping people to be equipped to sit down and compassionately weep with those who weep. We're going to talk a little bit about that tomorrow. So let me give you the summary before we go to our uh, fourth C here in just a moment. Let me give you the summary. It's not in your notes. Does our equipping and biblical counseling focus on, that's just kind of what we're saying every time, does our equipping and biblical counseling focus on, so as you're looking at the end result, here's a summary, empowering people to comfort and care front, does our biblical counseling equipping focus on empowering, that's that mission stuff, we're going to empower you to comfort people, paracletic, and we're going to empower you to care front, euthetic. Now, sometimes people have asked, well, why don't you put those two together? But, you know, if you put paracletic and euthetic together, you have pathetic counseling. <laughs> That's not going to sell. I've tried it with publishers. It's not going to work. So I don't care what you call it, but true biblical counseling is doing both of these, right? care and comforting people, paracletic and euthetic. Now, what's the context in which this is done? That's the fourth C of Christian community connecting in Jesus, brothers and one another. Now, where do I get this from? Well, let's talk about it. I get it from the beginning. Paul says, I myself am convinced that you yourself, brothers. Paul is in a context of community. If you look at the chapters that precede chapter 15 of Romans, you've got the one another. Forgive one another, accept one another. There's one another's all over the place. The end of this verse talks about competent to instruct one another. You go to the rest of chapter 15 and into chapter 16, you've got these small house churches dotting the countryside of Rome. This is a small group, small house, one another context. That's where I get this idea of Christian community from. Talked about the one another context. Notice a bullet point there toward the bottom of that page. We become effective, this is what I've said several times, we become effective biblical counselors by receiving and providing biblical counseling in community. One of my lab professors that I trained and is now part of the Biblical Counseling Coalition, Dwayne Bond, uh, he says counseling has got to be real and raw, and our labs have to be real and raw. We're going to talk about labs in just a minute as we wrap up. Uh, when I have a little bit more time, I've got a video of a bunch of our graduates from Capital Bible Seminary talking about each of these C's, and Megumi, who's from Japan, Uh, She had graduated, and she became my administrative assistant, and we interviewed her. And you can barely understand it in her Japanese English, but she says, community is the container for the other three Cs. And I love that. It's a container. Christian community of a safe, grace-oriented environment. That's the place that we best learn. Character, content, and competence. It's a container. I I love that part. Now, again, if we had more time we could talk about the question at the bottom because I think it's a really important question that I'd, I'd like you to think about and, and ponder a little bit. How would our equipping and biblical counseling be impacted if one of the four C's was de-emphasized? What would happen if content was de-emphasized? What would happen if community was de-emphasized? What would happen if competence was de-emphasized? What would happen if, which one have I left out? Whatever the other one is. Or look at the other question. What if one is overemphasized? What if it's all brain-dumped? and no character. And I think it's important to consider because you want to be thinking about that question that we've been asking at the end of the day. What do you want? And I didn't really give you a question for that last one, but let's think about it this way. I'm making this one up because I don't have it in my notes. But in your equipping of biblical counselors, are you focused on people who can relate deeply to one another? Maybe that would be the way I would say that. And I'm trying to put this together in my own mind because I didn't do that for the fourth one. Are you, are you focused on equipping and empowering people that can relate deeply to one another? Isn't that what biblical counseling is really about? Relating deeply around the word of God through the power of the spirit of God. In our final 10 minutes, let's talk about how you do this. 10 minutes to do that, right? <laughs> well, it's not happening, but I want to give you a few thoughts about how do you pull this off? If you're trying to have equipping that does all four of these things, that, that is true to Romans 15, 14. What are some things that you do? Well, first of all, remember, it can't just be a brain dump. What I'm doing right now, hopefully is a little bit more than a brain dump because I've been trying to think about relating this to your life and your ministry, but still, if it's just this lecture part, then it really is not enough. It needs to be transformational. You know, how do we relate truth to life in love? Now, let's think about this a little bit. First of all, Transformational Student-Oriented Teaching and Training. Let me just give you a few thoughts here. First of all, a book that that I had years ago when I was at uh, Baptist Bible College in Clark Summit, this is a newer edition, but by Larry Richards, Creative Bible Teaching, taught me four principles that changed my preaching, teaching, counseling, everything. If you've read the book, you know, Hook, Book, Look, and Took. Hook is what any good preacher does. You start with some illustration that hooks and brings people in, right? Book is... You settle on the Word of God and you, you talk about the truth and you explain what the Scriptures say. Look is you then relate it to life in general. And took, you say, what are you going to do differently now? Hook, book, look, and took. Now, you probably don't have time to get all that into your head, but buy the book. I don't get anything from telling you to buy the book. Buy the first edition if you can get it. It's even better than this later one. But our teaching needs to be hook, hook, book, even our lecture part of our teaching. We need to be saying to students, what difference does this make? I've tried to do that several times tonight. What are you going to do differently here? Another thing I try to do still under this first point is what I call PDQs. You can call them anything you want, prompting discussion questions. I built a couple of those in, but because this is compacted into 60 minutes instead of a couple hours, we haven't had have time to look at it. We had that initial hook one. You know, If you were sending your resume to the divine counselor, that would have been a hook question to get you into it. We had the question just a moment ago that I at least referenced for you, which was, what would happen if you left one of the out? What would happen if you... PDQs, prompting discussion questions, even in your lecture interaction time. You need to have, and still under point one, life ministry application. So you're talking... Let's think about today. We talked about Christology an hour ago, right? But did we relate Christology to our lives? We related it all over the place. So you can talk and should talk about Christology with your biblical counseling trainees, but are you helping them to think through what Paul does in Philippians 2, 5, 6, 7, and 8? But this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, you also need to have what I call immediacy, where you shift from lecture to lab on the moment. Let's say somebody raises a question and they're talking about something and they start crying as they do it. Well, as a shrewd, discerning, compassionate biblical counselor, we probably shouldn't only give them truth. We might want to say, and if we're trying to create an atmosphere of safety and grace, we might say, you know, it's obvious that this is more than an academic question for you. We're in our lecture part, but I'll set this aside and we'll come back to it next week if you would like us to talk about this right now. Or would you prefer we just pray for you right now? You give them an invite, don't insist, Something like that in a second can change everything because you move from lecture because you cared about the person in front of you and you sit down with them if they give you permission and that lecture becomes a lab where the class either sees you or together ministers to that person. Have that ability to shift gears into that immediate process that's right in front of us. Another aspect, transformational small group lab-oriented training. I believe that we always should have both lecture and lab You're you're conveying conveying truth in this relating-to-life way we just talked about, but you also have the lab time. Um, And to me, there's a lot of good things you can do. They can observe you as a trainee. They can do role play. All of that is good. Please don't hear me saying that's not good because that's been wonderful in the history of biblical counseling. Let's keep doing it. But what I would encourage us to do, as I've said throughout, create that environment where, in addition to that, we actually are giving and receiving biblical counseling with one another in the room. I've seen this so many times become so powerful. Now, some thoughts on how you cultivate this climate. A couple of things to think about. Because I'm talking about something a little bit different. And I've done this in labs sometimes in seminaries where they're not used to this at all, where they're expecting just watching me counsel or role play. And we're talking about messing with people's lives and real life stuff. So how do you create that? Well, one way you do that, He's the leader, models it. The very first class, very first semester, 17 years ago, at Capital Bible Seminary, Sister Ellen Barney, remember I talked about her a minute ago? She and Dwayne Bond, I mentioned him a minute ago. He's on our Biblical Counseling Coalition Council Board. They both kind of looked at me at the beginning of the lab, and they said, you know, you're shifting from pastoral ministry into seminary ministry. There's a lot of changes going on. here. How are you doing with that, Doc K?" And I had a choice right then. I'm doing fine, that's cool, let's move on. Just like I had a choice when I saw myself as that 10-year-old in my dad's oversized suit. Or I could say, you know, there's some tough... Now, I'm not talking about everything becomes about you. That's not what I... But wisely with discernment and being spirit-led, you decide those times when putting your stuff out there can be helpful to the entire group. I mean, if the leader is willing to say, I'm struggling, that opens up the group to say, it's okay to be honest about... Struggle. So that openness, that transparency is important. Confidentiality is vital. If you're going to have labs that aren't just role play, but they're really messing with each other's lives, that's a loving way to say biblical counseling, um, then you need to say, nothing leaves this room. All right? Now, the lecture stuff and the content you learn fine, but you're not going to go taking this stuff out. That's got to be forgiven. And the other thing I mentioned earlier inviting and not insisting. You know, there's a pacing to this type of deep relating in a training setting. Now, part of what you need to do is, when you're doing your interviewing and training and recruiting of people, you need to tell them at the beginning, we're going to mess with each other's life. It's not just going to be content unrelated to life. I'm going to counsel you. You're going to counsel me. It's going to happen in front of So they bought into it to begin with, but until they see it and experience it, they don't know it. But you invite. Sounds like you're struggling now, would you? And if they say, you know, right now, I prefer we not do it, respect that amazing how many times next week they may say, could we revisit that? Because you trusted them. You respected them. How to implement message uh, methods. Well, a lot of things we do already. Um, you do role plays. You do observation where they watch you. You do counseling where they counsel one another and you jump in from time to time. All of those are important. But the thing that I'm, I know it's a broken record at this point, adding to the the methods, and it's much more than a method, is that real life counseling. Counsel one another together. All just some of the different methods. In the last couple of minutes, let's talk about outside training for equipping. Uh, transformational meeting. Real simply, I believe in the threefold model of Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy. So whether I lead a lab in a seminary or I lead counseling training in a church, every person has a Paul. It's either me or another co-trainer or somebody that's graduated that's supervising them. Everybody has an encouragement partner or a peer that's at the same stage of counseling. I do male and male, female and female. And then everybody, after a certain amount of training, not right from the get-go, but at a certain amount of training, they've got a Timothy that they're now building into under my supervision or somebody else's supervision. That, that's a historic biblical model that I encourage you to do, threefold Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy. And then transformational training and assignments. You know, I think it's important to assign papers, but not just content, but content related to life. I think it's important to assign books, but get the, have a list of questions—ten questions—that get the people to what What's a weakness in the book? What's the strength in the book? What would you do differently if you were an editor? What would you have taken out? Get people thinking about the books that you, even if it's your book. Now, people are a little timid if you, but after a while, they're. They're very happy to criticize my book, or your book, <laughs> if you create that atmosphere so that you're not just teaching them to, or giving them a fish, you're teaching them to fish. Now, the last part, people often ask, and this is part of the best practice summary, what's the length of training? And, by the way, the reason I have, like, SEAL training, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what that's a picture of. This is serious business that we're dealing with. We're training people to deal with real-life messes. And so I think we need to have a serious amount of training because some people push back. on me. boy, that amount of training is never going to happen. Well, it is warfare. It's spiritual warfare. The average best practice of the 24 churches was 75 hours of inside training. And then there was additional outside reading. So they may have 48 hours, you know, faith. They've got their 50 hours. But then in addition to that, they're doing supervision. They're doing other stuff. So the average was 75 When you added outside reading and supervision, the average was at least 150 hours of training. Now, people will push back with that sometimes. Say, well, now you're saying it's like they've got to have a degree and a college education. Well, let's think about even the max there, 150 hours. And that's even including outside training? Well, let's all wrap that in. You know what that is in a Bible college semester? That's four courses. And it's really only two courses because those courses have outside reading anyway. So even this far end is like two college courses. So you tell me it's too much to expect a layperson to go through two the equivalent of two college courses. I don't think it's too much at all. And by the way, the other thing is if you do this the way we've been talking about with labs and groups, they don't want to stop. They're like, this is the best small group experience I have ever had. Can we keep doing them?" Now, you got to shepherd them on and get them ministering, but you know, these people that are doing this, they'd be involved in your church in some ministry anyway. It's not like, so anyway, I could talk a lot on this, but you need to spend some time training. Last part, schedule, scope, sequence, and again, I mentioned earlier, I've wrestled most of my life, I'm a wrestling coach, so I've got to get wrestling and everything somehow, but it's serious stuff. And in wrestling, you train people seriously. Um, when I first started, I would do the one-hour lecture, one-hour lab, If we had Wednesday night and we met for two hours, since I've changed that, and there's no magic way of doing that. But to get that lab going where you're really messing with each other's lives and doing one another ministry, you need the two hours. So what I do a lot of times now is one week it might be a two-hour lecture interaction with a break and applying to life and different creative Bible teaching. The next week it might be a two-hour lab. A lot of different ways of doing it. As far as the training, and again, best practice, there's a lot of different ways of doing it. But what most people do, if they break it up into two years or two semesters, what you find a lot of times is your first year or semester is foundations. We've got to get the foundations of theology, of methodology, of biblical counseling. And then what typically happens in your second year, and this is if you do some real good surveys for your congregation, what I like to do is electives. And what I like to do, maybe I do a elective on sexual abuse because as we surveyed our congregation, that's all over the place. I don't just teach them about sexual abuse. I say, look, we're going to study how the scripture gives us wisdom for dealing with sexual abuse. But then I want you to write a paper on anxiety using the same process that we use for sexual abuse. Follow what we're talking about there? So you lay the foundation in the first year of the first semester, and then by giving electives you're not going to give people everything they need because there's new stuff that comes up all the time but if you teach them a way of going to scriptures and relating that to people's lives that's what you want to do well it's time let me close this in prayer i thank you for your focused attention at nine o'clock at night Uh, let's pray father this has been a lot and and with this group i know i feel uncomfortable in a way because i know they all are passionate and and all of them could teach what I've been saying. They're doing this already. So I just pray that your spirit would take some nugget of what they've heard that they can add to what they're doing. I pray your spirit would give them more confidence that their process is a biblical one. I pray that maybe for some of us we could be more comprehensive. I pray for some of us we could think about relating truth to life more whatever it may be, Lord. I thank you for these men and women, their commitment to you and equipping others may they be able to say like sister ellen has said that there's grandbabies now they passed the baton the torch of ministry to others who are doing one another ministry we pray this in Christ's name amen thank you copyright 2013 ibcd all rights reserved more free audios can be found on our website at www.ibcd.org